is the Connor Chepnick Podcast, episode number 16. Today I'm lucky enough to be joined uh, by Mike from River. Mike, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on today. Thanks, Connor. Thrilled to be here. Can't wait to talk. Likewise. So uh, the agenda of today is to discuss the block size war. But before we get into this, um, I know you do some exciting stuff with uh, River. So I would love to just have you give a little introduction and let my audience know uh, what you're all about. Sure. My name is Mike Lathakis. I work at River Financial, um, river.com. I work on the client services team, um, and I've been there for about almost exactly a year now. Um, so on the year anniversary. Thank you, thank you. For those unfamiliar, yeah, River, we're um, Bitcoin-only exchange, um, as well as we offer hosted mining and uh, uh, Lightning support as well. So, um, yeah, we just have we just got miners, some new miners in inventory. So uh, we're selling miners if anyone's interested. But yeah. Happy to talk to uh, anyone interested more about River. Well, I think you're a perfect person to have on for a conversation about the block size wars because I know River runs one of the biggest uh, lightning nodes in the whole ecosystem. And as I learned reading the block size war is lightning would have never been a thing had it not been for what went down and uh, SegWit and you know the big blockers splitting with the small blockers and obviously Bitcoin Cash doing its own thing and then Bitcoin integrating uh, SegWit and that eventually allowed for the Lightning Network to become what it is today. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, no, definitely a big takeaway from the book. Um, yeah, li I guess Lightning Network is, I feel like, just the, um, yeah, the uh, the beneficiary, I guess, of, of all the block size wars, but yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, for, for those who aren't as far down the rabbit hole as us, you know, when you're thinking of a blockchain, there's ironically enough vitalik from ethereum came up with this but there's three triangles and you have scalability decentralization and security and uh, bitcoin optimized for decentralization and security which meant it's sacrificed on the scalability and in this book it talks a lot about basically people wanting to increase the block size and the small blockers were afraid of that because they knew if they increased the block size they would be compromising on uh, the security of the system in order to increase its scalability. And I think Lightning Network is a beautiful thing. And obviously I know when Lightning first started, a lot of payments were dropping, it wasn't perfect. But I mean, to see what we have nowadays with Noster, it's just, it's so incredible that anyone can create a public-private key pair and then start shit posting online, post memes, post whatever <laughs> content they find valuable. And now people, because of the Lightning Network, can just zap them Satoshis. And uh, especially at a time like this, you know, I think we're gonna look back and talk to our kids about how we were getting zaps, Toshis for shitposting essentially. And they're just, it's going to blow their minds that the amount people would send uh, just to celebrate the, the content that, you, that you've put out there. Um, have you, have you been using Oster at all? Yeah, I do. Actually, I was going to ask you, maybe I'll get your, I'll get your information after we can uh, get shitpost together on Oster. Please. I, I haven't used it too much to be honest. Um, but yeah, I, I I do enjoy. I know some some Bitcoiners that I follow are exclusively on Nostr now, so seeing their content exclusively there is, uh, I, yeah, I like it. Yeah, it seems to be a, a mass shift away. And uh, yeah. the other thing that excites me so much about Nostr, and it kind of ties in with the Lightning Network, is the fact that you can, uh, I guess, like the NIP five, which is how you kind of verify yourself on Nostr, um, but you can have that as a Lightning address. So people, you know. If you run a Lightning node, as you know, it has to be online 24-7-365. But if you have like a Lightning address now, obviously you're sacrificing. Um, you have to have a third party host that Lightning node. But you know, like I have a chep at getalbi.com where there's tons of other services, Wallet of Satoshi. 
you can have that static address. So in the same way, you can just post a, a Bitcoin address online and people can send sats to that static address anytime your Bitcoin node doesn't have to be online. Now with things like Noster and uh, all these custodial services coming online, people can just have a static lightning address. And for smaller amounts, like no one's going to get out their phone and Venmo someone two cents on Twitter, but zap someone 50 Satoshis, 21 sats. It's uh, the, the, the friction is just seamless. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, the verification process, the, the what is it, NIP5 you said, right? NIP5, yeah. NIP5, yeah. yeah. I feel like that's tr what what Musk was like trying to do. I feel like with this new verification, the uh, the must tax, whatever eight dollars per you know per month, there's something there that sort of resembles that kind of verification. Um, I mean, obviously way different, but I do see sort of the benefit of what he's trying to do, maybe because it seems like these social media platforms having that extra step of verification, just weeding out a lot of bad actors and um, a lot of spam and a lot of bots. Um, I feel like it's definitely interesting to see how Noster sort of progresses with that over the next couple of years. Yeah, one thing I'm very hopeful on, on Noster is uh, them getting rid of likes. And maybe I should just build my own client and, client yeah. and stop LARPing about telling other developers <laughs> what to do. Um, but I would love to see them just completely scrap likes. And then the only way to see if a, a post was doing well is to have zaps. I guess you could also have reposts, which would be the equivalent of a retweet. But I feel like yeah. if you actually, what better way to disincentivize spam and people actually having to part with a, uh, a piece of value, something that actually represents, you know, a monetary unit. And, you know, I understand why they have likes, but I feel like if they got rid of that on Noster, no algorithm, just see how much uh, people want to zap a post. I think that'd be a really cool way to kind of sift through the noise and help the, the best stuff. Well, there really isn't an algorithm yet on any of these clients. So it, even getting a ton of zaps, it doesn't necessarily put it to the top, but it would be a way for people to kind of check and see uh, how well this post is doing right yeah verify some engagement just to understand what's what's popular yeah agreed so getting back to the uh, the block size wars uh, i think one thing that's important too in bitcoin and one thing that bitcoiners are pretty good about is trying to steel man the case against uh, their opinion and what are your thoughts on the big blockers and why they were willing to sacrifice the whole um security or i guess i should say decentralization aspect of bitcoin in order to increase scalability. Yeah, I, it's so my foray into the block size wars was hearing Roger Ferry actually interviewed. That was back in yeah 2017, and I feel like his what convinced me. So I'm I'm ashamed to say. So I did buy some BCH back in the day, because of Roger Ferry. He was convincing, but whatever. I'm ashamed. Whatever that was in the past. <laughs> it's, it's all it's all we, gone. We all now. learn. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like what was so convincing, at least for at least rhetorically. I don't know exactly what he believed rhetorically. Um, the just the 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 number of transactions and trying to make Bitcoin adoption speed up as fast as possible. I feel like a lot of the big blockers were kind of approaching it as like Bitcoin as a startup. You know, we need adoption. Like looking at adoption curves, how can we get as many people as possible to adopt to adopt Bitcoin and use it um, for transactions with with vendors and whatnot. Um, so that seemed like to be the 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 best case scenario, or at least the like the in good faith argument of why the block size, at least why it resonated with me originally. Um, because it's pretty hard to tell somebody in this modern day, hey, we're going to have transactions that are slower and they're going to cost more. That's very hard to sell to people. And I feel like you have to be very far-sighted and long-term thinking to sort of understand what that actually means. Um, and so I'm just, I'm, I mean, we're both living in the post, you know, small block versus big block world. And I'm just grateful that the small blockers had the wherewithal and the foresight to understand that. Yeah, there, there's two things you said there that I think are really important. The first being that uh, 
the big blockers were kind of treating it like a startup or a company. And one of the things that's so beautiful about Bitcoin is there's no central authority who can decree what Bitcoin is. You have to have majority consensus, as we learned in the Block Size Wars, to really have any changes if you want to do a user-activated soft fork or whatever. And getting that consensus is extremely hard with a decentralized network. Then the other thing, too, is it's, it's always easy with hindsight to look back and, you know, say, oh, well, now we have Lightning and now we have this. And clearly Bitcoin's going to be able to scale to accommodate the world. And uh, obviously Lightning has come a long way and it's still not perfect. And um, I, I know there's all sorts of other solutions being floated. I was just listening to uh, Marty Ben who had on, I think it's OnRamp Capital or something. And they're doing some interesting stuff with multi-sig to help more corporate entities take uh, control or very high net worth individuals. So the way Bitcoin scales, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I think Lightning is going to play a pivotal role in that. But it's much easier to sit here now and talk about uh, how far we've come and how great it is. But back at that point, you know, no one really knew if Bitcoin would be successful. I think Bitcoin today at roughly 30,000 is a lot less risky than Bitcoin back in uh, 2017 before it ran all, almost all the way up to 20,000. You know, um, and it, one thing I think that was uh, just a huge takeaway for me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is the ability to not get so, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, set in your ways. And I feel like a lot of the big blockers were obviously incredibly wealthy because they got in on Bitcoin so early and they've just relentlessly continued to, uh, at least Roger Ver, I don't know about the other ones. I, I know Jihong Wu has, uh, I believe, both Bitcoin and BCH. And last I heard he held a little more BCH. But I, <laughs> but I, I think a lot of uh, the, the big blockers um, were just so set in their ways towards the end of it that they, it's, it's at least from the perspective of the author in that book, it seemed like the big blockers, at some point it stopped actually being about promoting the best possible type of Bitcoin and more so sticking it to the small blockers and uh, it, it was really cool to read about how the small blockers were just composed the whole time let the big blockers shoot themselves in the foot you know i think it's a bit analogous to uh what's probably going to happen with bitcoin adoptions i think i don't think nation states are necessarily going to embrace it wholeheartedly i think they're going to shoot themselves in the foot and realize at some point that we have to have a bitcoin strategy but i think a lot of the g7 the, the big countries who have the most to lose are just going to kind of stumble into this thing and keep shooting themselves into the foot until it's apparent that they have to embrace Bitcoin or they will die. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it seemed like um, just reading, you know, throughout the book and just, you know, reading other stuff online about it, it seemed like the argument became less about, you know, the actual physical block size and more about just the immutability of the Bitcoin rules. I mean, that seemed to me kind of like the overarching theme, you know, because like I, I, I couldn't debate a big blocker that like back some of those guys, you know, super technical, super smart guys, Roger Vera too, like really good at argument, argumentation and whatnot. Like if I was sitting here, he would probably destroy any argument I have about the small block, but it's, it doesn't, for me, that's kind of doesn't matter. It's about like the immutability of the Bitcoin network and not changing the protocol rules. And it seemed like a lot of that um, stuff that was being argued was sort of like smoke and mirrors. I mean, at least how I look at it more in hindsight now, um, yeah, the, the fact that the Bitcoin rules are, are so difficult to change, um, that seemed to be like, you know, like the main point. Yeah, and that point about like this being an immutable ledger, anyone can use, no one can censor you. I know a big qualm with the big blockers is they felt like they were being censored on Reddit. And uh, I don't remember exactly, but like the, I forget if it was Bitcoin or Reddit BTC subreddit, the mods essentially kicked off the big blockers and said, we're no longer going to put up with this. And the big blockers felt essentially attacked and 
I, I get why they'd be upset about the whole free speech thing, but at the same time, they are on a centralized platform called Reddit. Reddit is not Bitcoin. You know, they uh, it, it's comparing apples and oranges a bit, trying to make that claim with free speech. And like to your point, I think a little bit of that got lost when they were arguing so adamantly for these big blocks. They weren't even considering that big blocks might make it so that at some point they could have been censored out of Bitcoin. Who, who, who knows what would have happened had they given up that uh, decentralization part of the triangle? Yeah, I guess it is fair to say. I mean, I know that some of the posts were censored on our Bitcoin. And I think I think our BTC, right, is the yeah, like the Bitcoin cash one. Um, yeah. So it was interesting learning. Yeah, the RBCH now. Or yeah, or yeah, I guess yeah. So I don't even know if our BTC exists even, I, but um, I think it does. I yeah. think you're right. I think it's still okay. uh, they still got the big blocks. Yeah. In terms of running a node, had this uh, thing pass, I guess let me back it up a little bit. When, when Satoshi was around, th there really wasn't a big distinction, if any distinction, between a mining node and just a software node where you're not actually mining for blocks, but you're just verifying that the Bitcoin you hold is yours and you hold the private key on your hardware device. I'm curious what your thoughts are on uh, if the big blockers, it seemed like there was a bit of hand waving, like, oh, it's not something you have to worry about. How do you think that would have played out with the nodes had we had that block size limit increase? And, you know, at this point, I, I don't know what the number would be, but I'd assume it'd be well above a terabyte had we had the eight megabyte uh, blocks be in the main blockchain. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely, obviously, that was another, you know, main argument with them. Um, I actually don't run a node. I'm in the process of setting up one right now. Um, nice. But, yeah, as far as as far as I know right now, just um, running a node, it's still, you know, the I think the whole blockchain is, what, like maybe 600 um, gigabytes, something like that? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that, is that about right? Okay. It's somewhere between 500 and 600 at this point. Okay. Um, yeah, so definitely, you know, the, the, average, the average person can still run a node, and um, that's extremely powerful. Again, I think we... Um, you know, especially in the day of you know, big conglomerate country or big conglomerate companies um, becoming more nationalized and bigger and, you know, every year larger companies are growing um, sort of power back to the to the individual user. Um, that's not really making money off nodes either. I mean, miners are making money, you know, node, you know, node operators. You're just, you know, you're validating transactions. You're um, some people do it as a hobby. And I think that's also just so important that it just kind of goes against the grain of modern um, like profit seeking um, or government corporatism, I guess, that you can sort of, you know, um, empower the people of the network, even if they're not making money to sort of keep the, the network validated. So, um, yeah, super powerful. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, why I started running a node, it was just altruism at first. That and I kind of wanted yeah. to learn, but it's like, heck yeah, I, I want to do my part. I want to strengthen the Bitcoin network. So I literally bought a, uh, an old server on eBay with like three terabytes of memory. And I was like, I'm nice. just not going not, not gonna to have to worry about it. But also, I know um, I've played, I've tinkered with Raspberry Pis, and you can open Lightning channels with Umbrel. And I want to start playing with Start Nine. I've only used Umbrel, um, but it's just getting easier and easier. And it's very encouraging to see these companies building these products. Where, I mean, it still takes some technical wherewithal, but you don't have to be a back-end engineer or a full-stack developer at this point to buy Raspberry Pi, spin it up. Um, Run Umbro. My only advice is if you're going to use a Raspberry Pi, learn the hard way. Make sure you get a fan and some heat sinks on it, because otherwise your Raspberry Pi will get very hot <laughs> trying to uh, run a, run a Bitcoin node. Yeah, the node I'm spinning up is going to have, is going to be using Umbro. Um, yeah, I haven't used Start Nine, but I've heard good things about it. Same, same. Going forward, what lessons do you think we can take away from the block size war and? Uh, you know, I know there's been a little bit of controversy with tap roots and inscriptions and ordinals and um, 
I guess now we have four megabyte blocks. Ironically <laughs> yeah. enough, Tapper will offer four megabyte blocks, so they're here. That's not going anywhere. So I'm curious how, how you see it playing out in the future and if there is still, I mean, I guess most BCH and big blockers are still on the BCH chain somehow, but uh, if there will, if you think there will be a push for bigger blocks in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously hard to tell. Um, it, it seems like the narrative around at least increasing the block size has dissipated. I mean, I don't see anything on Twitter really. It seems like that conversation has been has been muted. Um, but it seems like the big takeaway for me with the block size wars has just become that, you know, layer twos and maybe layer threes down the line and other applications built on top of the Bitcoin network are going to be like the, the new paradigm. Um, it seems like that's been set now, like we we're talking about before, the Lightning Network. Um, sort of expanding on Lightning Network, you know, Dev is moving towards just Lightning development. Um, in the future, it just seems like, you know, the Bitcoin status quo will remain the base layer. And I think that's great. I mean, I don't think it should change. I think it should be as hard as possible um, to change consensus and, um, you know, keep the re Bitcoin rules um, stable. So it seems like, yeah, the paradigm going forward will just be, let's build stuff on top of, on top of Bitcoin. And I know people, a lot of the shitcoiners too. I, you know, we've probably all had arguments with the shitcoiners about um, various uh, various applications being built, and I think it is a good compromise to t you know t for them to understand like, hey, you know, smart contracts they do exist. I mean, multi-sig, there are things that exist in Bitcoin that are small contracts. So I think you know, Bitcoiners aren't against the technologies per se, but these layers that can be built on top of Bitcoin going forward, I do find them interesting. I mean, I don't know which projects really right now are getting that much traction as much as the Lightning Network, for example. But I'm excited to see the future, how that, how that plays out. Yeah, it's really interesting. Some of my friends who I guess I could say, quote unquote, shitcoin, showing them the Lightning Network and showing them the power and seeing that instantly, they're like, well, this kind of obsoletes a lot of the narratives I've been hearing in my shitcoin yeah. spaces. Um, I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on the whole inscriptions, ordinals thing? That's obviously been a hot topic in Bitcoin recently. Yeah, I mean, I that never really went down the rabbit hole too much um, with all that. Um, it seems like that's kind of cooled off a little bit. I don't know. I haven't really followed the uh, the Twitter the Twitter space, the Twitter uh, the buzz around that that much. But I don't. know, I kind of fell into the camp like if you're paying paying for block size. Um, I don't know. That that was sort of my opinion. If you're paying for block size, who cares what you do on it? Um, but I'm curious to hear how you approached it. Yeah, I, th I think that's the right perspective to have if someone's willing to pay for the block size. Who the hell is someone else to tell them uh, what, what you can and can't do? Now, personally, uh, the whole Ordinals theory, like, I mean, I know Sparrow made it easy, which is cool. Sparrow Wallet's a great wallet, and you can, like, track your Satoshis. But personally, at least at this time, I don't see myself ever parting with uh, X amount of sats to try and acquire one sat. I, you know, it's like that meme, like I receive, you receive trade offer. And the yeah. guy's like, right here, it's like one Satoshi that's quote unquote rare. <laughs> and I, you receive one Satoshi that's quote unquote rare. And I receive a hundred million Satoshis. That just seems insane yeah. to me. Um, but if someone's willing to make that trade and I think it also, I think technically I'm not perfect on it, but as I understand it, inscriptions are actually inscribed on the Bitcoin blockchain so if you run a Bitcoin node, that data is there and it's immutable and it will forever be on the Bitcoin blockchain, which is pretty badass compared with the NFT model where you essentially have a token that points to someone's server that's supposed to be housing a JPEG that obviously anyone can take a screenshot of. Um, now, obviously, you can take a screenshot of the inscription, but the difference is like, you know, I, I think most people who trade NFTs would look at a platform like OpenSea or one of the other big marketplaces for NFTs. 
I don't think OpenSea would do this because they're not incentivized to screw with their customers. But theoretically, if they just wanted to go add a bunch of curse words onto the photos, I mean, they, you know, there's not there's nothing you could really do to stop that, or you know, prevent them from messing with your JPEG. And I, I think the fact that inscriptions are on the, the Bitcoin ledger is is a cool part of the technology. Now, I also think it's uh, it's a double-edged sword because, like, obviously, you know, if people put like pornography or there's certain things on the Bitcoin blockchain. I think there's a lot of people who'd be like, well, I don't want that on my computer. But if it's inscribed on the blockchain, tough. I mean, it's, it's on, you, there's nothing you could do. It's on your computer now if you run a Bitcoin node. Um, but also stuff like 3D gun printing or uh, if like, I don't know, say there was another Pentagon Papers leak and someone wanted to make sure that they could inscribe it from the internet, you put it, you could inscribe it on the blockchain. So I, I think the technology is cool. I also have a lot more work to go down and understand yeah. really what's going on. And I'm not willing to part with, my, at least not at this time. I, I don't know what future me might be thinking, but at this time, there's no way in hell I'm trading X amount of stats for one Satoshi. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I do think it's cool that we're getting some of the quote unquote crypto bros or whatever to come and be like, oh, maybe, maybe there's something to this Bitcoin blockchain. And, and I hope at that point they go down and start to understand more. And, and like you said, if someone's willing to pay for the block space, who the hell are we to tell them, you know, what they can and can't do? Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree to the sentiment about, yeah, about some of the um, NFT people and, you know, all coiners that are, became, became interested in blockchain or sorry, in Bitcoin just because of, of ordinals and whatnot. And I was excited to hear, I had a couple of friends, for example, talk about it. And it was encouraging to hear them, you know, show interest in the Bitcoin blockchain. But of course, like for the wrong reasons, you know, like the whole get rich quick thing, it's like that same motivation. Um, so I don't know, hopefully those guys stick around to sort of learn about Bitcoin, like me, you and many other Bitcoins, hope, Bitcoiners hopefully to go down the rabbit hole, not just, you know, like the get rich quick schemes. So I don't know, that remains to be seen, but who knows? Yeah, well, and I know you're an Austrian economist and I would consider, I guess, myself an Austrian um, not an economist. I think, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast. I'm not, no, 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 I, not, not an official economist, but <laughs> nowhere I near. Mean, honestly, I, I think after seeing how wrong Keynesian economists get it, uh, I think at this point you don't need to. Not having a degree is should be a badge of honor because clearly you can get a PhD, and you know at that point, like uh, Peter Saint Ange says on Twitter, they're they're just PhDs paid to lie to the people. You know, tell them inflation is transitory and whatever, um, but. I bring that up because I feel like if you come from the Austrian school of thought and you believe in it, it's uh, it's a lot easier to see Bitcoin for more than just the number go up technology that it is. And if not, you know, a lot of people just look at it and uh, they'll come to the space and then they won't keep going down the rabbit hole and realize it's so much more than number go up technology. They'll just come for the number go up technology and then either, you know, sell after their bags have been pumped or sell at the bottom when they, they, they're not convinced this is number go up technology anymore and then watch it rip again. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, how did you end up going down the Austrian school of thought and, and how did that impact your Bitcoin journey when, when you first got into the space? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it kind of from the Keynesian approach, I mean, you know, basically learning about economics in college and post-college and sort of something never seemed right. You know, I never even heard about Austrian economics until like later in life. I mean, literally never heard about it. I didn't know what it was. And sort of when I when I heard, you know, a lot of the their approach to their approach to economics, um, in terms of you know, looking at things through the individual, um, you know, um, 
marginal theory, all this stuff. Like I, it was eye opening because they, the Austrians would explain a lot of principles of economics through non-government entities, basically. And so I was, you know, I kind of was just learning through school. It's like, oh, minimum wage. Should the minimum wage be ten dollars or fourteen dollars? You know, and then the Austrians kind of come along and say, well, hey, like we're not using um, all these like algorithms and all this data analysis. Like if the price of labor goes up, um, if the if the price of labor goes up, then the number of laborers will decrease or the price will increase. You know, at the end user. So these like basic basic principles were just very clear to me after reading about like the Austrians. Um, and as far as money goes and like Bitcoin goes. Their their approach to um, you know money uh, money being first evolved through um, private uh, private entities or not not having government control over the money at first um, and again this it sounds so obvious to me now but like back then I was such a you know I was just caught up in like the government Keynesian um, economic approach so learning that hey there's money money can be controlled without the government, that was like very eye-opening for me. And that was, that was like a huge like orange pill for me to just realize like, oh, money is just like any other, it could be, could be traded like any other good or service. It does not have to be controlled by, a, by the Federal Reserve. Um, so then that coupled with just learning about Bitcoin, it kind of seemed like a natural marriage. And um, yeah, it was just so enlightening. Yeah, yeah. I'll say in my own journey, it's like, I, I love to say, it's number growth technology, but then you start to see how it fixes the world in so many ways. And when I say it fixes the world in so many ways, a lot of times it's it's hard to really articulate it to someone when you're just having a, a, a quick conversation. But that point exactly, it's like a money that doesn't have the government a part of every transaction. So it's just people agreeing to trade and interact with each other because both sides believe that they will be better off after trading in I think that gets distorted in the Keynesian model when you have a third party like the government who is, you know, I'm not going to say all regulations are bad, but think about how much brain drain happens in this country because of just absolutely heinous regulations, trying to appease regulators. I mean, if you look at the financial industry, I think some of the best and brightest minds in the United States go into the financial industry, not because they're passionate about finance and staring at spreadsheets, but because A, that's where the most money can be made. Then you also see it's like a rotating desk between the Fed, the central banks, the regulators, you know, these private banks. So they're all like buddy-buddy and just so much human talent just going to waste to Make you know to meet some arbitrary regulations that clearly don't even work well, as we saw with uh, SVB and all these. You know they're they're regulated to hold a certain amount of treasuries, and that blew up in their faces because the Fed went and raised rates, and that's a whole other can of worms. But mm -hmm. removing that unnecessary middleman from the transaction, I think, make transactions so much better, and it also allows for people to. Uh, if the money wasn't so corrupted, and we didn't have a fractional reserve system, and it wasn't inflating at a ridiculous rate. People could focus on things they wanted, and I don't think we'd have these misincentives where some of the best and brightest minds who could have came up with innovations we have no idea uh, will never come up with those innovations because they're they're chasing money, working on Wall Street. Which I'm not saying, you know, just because you go work on Wall Street, you're a bad person. I mean, but people follow the incentives, and uh, it's it's sad that so much talent gets wasted because you ha you have you know the unnecessary middleman of the government. Yeah, the close the closer you get to the money spigot, basically, it seems like the more corruption is, is is present. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all it's all incentives all the way down, and it, it's unfortunate too because 
I think when you're at the bottom of society and you see the people at the top cheating and lying and doing all these things to get ahead, a lot of times the natural inclination is to say, all right, screw it. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to lie and I'm going to hurt others because I see those at the top doing it. So, you know, people find a way to justify it in their own heads. And uh, if, if we didn't have that, if the people at the top were honest and noble and more people wanted aspire to be like that for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons, I think a lot of the problems you'd see in society, not every, it wouldn't be a utopia, but I think it'd be a lot better than we, than it is today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I, cause I, I live in Chicago and, you know, we had a lot of the, you know, a lot of the rioting during, you know, the COVID time. And just this past weekend, there was some, um, some rioting downtown. And I mean, I'm not condoning violence. Obviously, that's inexcusable. But it seems like the outrage for a lot of these rioting, like you mentioned, I think there's some grain of truth, to be honest, that's caught up in all the news is that people at the top get away with things as well. Just because I'm breaking a glass window and stealing something, is it that much different than taxing and you know inflating the currency away and like you said just corruption and uh, misappropriation of funds it's like what, what's actually worse here you know and I think there's some truth that like I said breaking windows and violence is not the answer but I think there is something interesting going on there at least like psychologically that shows that hey what are we really different here yeah yeah absolutely I mean, the Austrians are just uh, so spot on. And I think uh, I think the small blockers really were coming at it from the Austrian school of thought. And again, it's easy to look back with, with the benefit of hindsight. But now because we have stuff like lightning, you know, it it is it essentially fixed the majority of those scaling issues. And the, the biggest problem with lightning, as I'm sure you know, um, is without enough liquidity, you can't send X amount but then you can use the layer one chain. And in some cases, you know, if you're doing a massive transaction, even if you had the liquidity, there are some people who are like, no, I don't want to sacrifice. I would rather pay, you know, a, whatever X amount more sats to make sure I can have it on the layer one chain versus the layer two. But giving the market that option and letting the market decide, some people are completely against custodial solutions. And, you know, I get it. I, I understand it. Don't trust verify. That's the whole ethos of Bitcoin. But there are other people who just want to ship posts on us or just want an, you know, an LN URL to get tips and, and they're not so concerned about that. So letting the market decide, and, and I think that's a big thing that uh, the big blockers lost. I think it goes back to your point about how they kind of viewed Bitcoin as a startup or a company. And I think their heart was in the right place of like, let's drive as much Bitcoin adoption as possible. But what they were forgetting is that uh, it, you have to let the market decide. And, and I'd love to hear your thought. I, I thought it was such a fascinating part of the book when he talks about how some of these exchanges, when they actually like listed, I forget what all the coins were, but before BCH, like XBTC, or they, they, they listed these coins. And then there was a third actor. It wasn't just the core developers and the miners, but there was actually a market to decide, you know, for people to try and vote with their, their Bitcoin um, or, their, or their knockoff Bitcoin, what was actually the, the, the real Bitcoin. Okay, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm trying, I don't remember that part exactly of the book. Um... But yeah, it was um, I forget. I think it was BitMEX and some of these other exchanges. OK, they just like when the, when the token split, they actually let people trade them and decide what they wanted to do with them. And when gotcha. that happened, it was a it was a big W for the small blockers because the market made it very clear that they didn't support these other uh, non consensus protocol changing hard forks in Bitcoin that, you know, they they all voted. The market voted gotcha. that Bitcoin was the real Bitcoin. And right. Okay. Yeah. Now. I, okay. I remember what you're saying now. Yeah. I. 
I, at the time of like the BCH hard fork, I had like Bitcoin at Coinbase, and uh, okay, yeah, and like you know over overnight, right? It popped in my account. I'm like, oh, nice. I got some other. <laughs> what is this green Bitcoin thing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, obviously now time is time is you know has told the uh, the market price of Bitcoin cash is obviously you know nowhere near Bitcoin. So, but yeah, to your point, the market decides and um, it's decided. Yeah, it has decided. <laughs> Another part I thought was so fascinating in that book is uh, Gavin Anderson, uh, Andreessen, I might have said that wrong. Um, Andreessen, yeah. But he was one of the first developers. I mean, he was he was who got handed the keys to uh, the Bitcoin Core repository after Satoshi left. He essentially just had Gavin um, take over. And I'm so curious why he, Gavin, um, like what Craig Wright did to convince him and, you know, it was such a big deal in the Bitcoin space at the time that maybe rightfully so, I, I don't know enough to really comment on it, but they they removed his Bitcoin core uh, GitHub repository rights or whatever. He was in charge of the repository of Bitcoin core on GitHub and they removed it and gave it to another guy because uh, Gavin was claiming that Craig was Satoshi. And uh, what, what do you get the whole thoughts on that situation? Do you, do you know more than the book talked about with that? No, no, yeah, exactly same. Yeah, I'm not 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 too familiar with it. Um, I don't, you know, I don't even know where Gavin is. He still involved right now? I'm not really sure what his current status is. Um, I don't know if he's is working it, on any projects. I know he's in Western Mass. I don't know what he's doing. Oh, okay, he's, out, he's down near Amherst. So I'm in okay. Massachusetts too. That's the only only reason. And the first documentary I ever watched was Banking on Bitcoin, which had Gavin Andreessen in it. And uh, it's so funny. I remember this was like, um, I guess. I think it was 2017, yeah, 2017 going into 2018 at this point. And I watched this documentary and it was just talking about this like decentralized thing. You don't need any third party. So I remember asking my buddy at the time, I was like, well, where do I buy this Bitcoin? He's like, oh, on Coinbase. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, I was like, that's so weird. I need a third party to use this protocol. But whatever. I mean, all right, I'm convinced. Like, I'm not going to, I was in college. I wasn't going to do much research. I wish I had done more research at that time. Um, but right. I remember buying on Coinbase and then, yeah, seeing the green Bitcoin pop up. And then even later on, BCH split again when all the, the big yeah. blockers got fed up with Craig Wright's bullshit and now there's BSV and then that's just been delisted from Coinbase because it's uh, Oh, has I mean, it been officially finally now? I think it was it's a, just, it was a okay. bit ago but it was, yeah, it's, it was a while ago. Okay. I had some BSV too and then because um, I think I, I can't remember exactly I think Coinbase yeah, they wouldn't let you sell it you know so they weren't they would support it via uh, cut uh, custodially on their platform, but yeah, I don't know if you can sell it back then. And I was very confused. I think I had to like move it somewhere else and sell it, but yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think Satoshi's ever coming back, but how funny would that be if uh, you saw the coins in Satoshi's wallet moved? Then he just went and dumped a million BCH <laughs> <laughs> and bought Bitcoin with the receipts of that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Satoshi? What side? What do you think? Which side do you think Satoshi would have been on had a. Uh, he'd been around for those debates because I know at the time he, there really wasn't a difference between mining nodes and just nodes that verify for themselves. Right. Yeah. It, that was what, another takeaway for me from the book was um, just reading about how, you know, Satoshi first uh, applied the one megabyte limit um, in the code, basically just, you know, um, unilaterally. And I thought that was very interesting because, you know, we obviously like to point to the decentralization of Bitcoin now it's by far, I mean, on a, on a spectrum, it's the most decentralized crypto, obviously. That's, you know, not even close. But at one point, I mean, so one person was making rules, you know, the protocol. So I just found it interesting that at one point, you know, Bitcoin was almost completely centralized, you know, further down the spectrum. 
So, um, I don't know, that was just kind of enlightening for me to realize, like, hey, Bitcoin was never just, like, this perfect thing that existed, completely decentralized, and then obviously the scaling wars that, you know, we're talking about. So there's always been, you know, a lot of, um, you know, arguments and, um, and then, yeah, more centralization. So that was a big takeaway for me. I think to answer your question, Satoshi, just because Bitcoin to me is just such a um, long-term focused project, I feel like he would have fallen on the small, small block side. Just because it really did seem like it was small block, long term, big block, short term. It seemed like kind of not to oversimplify things, but that's how I was reading it. Um, so I feel like he definitely would have, you know, just being seemed very long term focused would have fallen on the small blocker side. Yeah. And I think the fact that Satoshi walked away just speaks. Uh, if you had to speculate on what side he would have been on, I agree with you because I think the fact he had the humility to walk away, it's kind of a sign like there shouldn't be any heroes in this. And I think. Obviously, I, I think Satoshi would have been definitely his character, his person would have been attacked by nation states in some form or fashion because this network has clearly proven it, it can be a threat to fiat currencies, hegemony. Um, but, but also the fact he walked away, it's like he didn't want Bitcoin to have leaders. He wanted it to be this like decentralized global consensus thing that it has become. And I, I, reading that book, I mean, obviously we're farther along now and it's a much bigger market cap than it was. But I still think we are so early in this cycle and, you know, you can have such an impact. And uh, I guess the more I've gone down the rabbit hole, I, I still love talking about it. And if anyone wants to chat about Bitcoin, my family <laughs> jokes, I never stopped talking about it. And I, I gladly could. But I've stopped trying to just like force it down people's throat and more so take, you know, the approach of meeting people where they are, trying to figure out why Bitcoin might be a value to their life. When they ask, should I buy some, telling them, no, you should go learn about it. And then if you want to buy some, by all means, let me give you a referral, <laughs> what, you know, $5 yeah. for Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> but, but trying to take a step back and being like, you should really learn about this thing because trying to stomach the volatility of this asset and to understand it. You know, I love, I, I don't know who said the quote, but it's like, Bitcoin is everything you don't understand about computer science and everything you don't understand about finance <laughs> wrapped in one. Yeah, and, uh, that's a good, good point. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's such a, it's such a large thing. Um, how, how, how how has your journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole kind of changed from, from the beginning to where you are now? Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, less evangelizing, I would say now. Um, but with that said, if I'm in like a social situation, and the, if I hear the word even across a room, like I'll go run over there and like <laughs> interject, right? You're still like that, like, oh man, someone's talking about it. Even if they're talking ill about it. I was, Honestly, it's almost more fun to talk to somebody who disagrees with Bitcoin. I find it actually more stimulating and more engaging. Um, because I mean, you know, when we're in the echo chambers, it's all fun. It's always a great time. But, um, when you're somewhat, sort of challenged, um, with your viewpoints and different opinions, um, it's fun to talk about to those people as well, but yeah, definitely less evangelizing. Um, you know, in the beginning sort of going on the rabbit hole, it was kind of like, Hey, download this wallet. Let me send you $10 worth of Bitcoin. Just do it. It's gonna be really cool. I'll show you how fast, you know, all this stuff. And now it's kind of like, man, I just, if, yeah, like you said, meeting someone, meeting someone where they are, um, I'd like to just take the long-term approach where it's like, Hey, don't look at this, you know, next two years, not trying to make a buck. Look about, look, look at this, you know, from your, you know, when you're 60 years old, 70 years old. And I like to use like the 401k example a lot of times to show somebody um, like long-term investing where it's like, you know, Bitcoin, you can buy your own Bitcoin, you can store it yourself and you have access to it at all times. You don't need to wait for some arbitrary law that was created that you have to be 65 and a half or whatever number it is now to access your retirement funds. So these types of things, I feel like sort of resonate with people, like looking long-term to understand to somebody like, hey, or to show somebody, this won't be inflated away. You'll have access to it whenever you want. You can control it. 
Um, so I find that to be like showing somebody like different investment strategies for the future. I find it to be pretty effective showing some some of the uh, the trade offs. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, point you made about when you're going out a party. It's like that thing yeah. when when you're at a party and then all of a sudden you hear your name and you're tuned into that. <laughs> yes, yeah. you're Bitcoin and you're tuned into that conversation. But the four hundred one k points such such a good one too because you know four hundred one k pension plans are regulated to hold X amount of treasuries, and before the BTFP program where essentially the central bank is just giving par for these bonds that are trading, you know, somewhere around 30% uh, under what their value was when they, in the secondary markets. I mean, it, it's, a, it's amazing how, um, you know, th th there's a reason they do not teach people how to understand these things in school. You have to go and get a fancy finance degree because if people realize what a farce it was, to your point, showing someone you can have access to this 247365. There's no arbitrary number you have to hit to get access to these funds. No one can debase these funds. And then on top of that, if you do have to spend it early, yes, you can put it on the exchange to get fiat currency, but you can also go find a rancher who's willing to sell some beef for Bitcoin or go on BitRefill and get a, you know, a Visa card or the Bitcoin. I mean, so many companies are popping up and offering ways where you can use your Bitcoin. And the best thing is really just to barter with someone to say, hey, you accept Bitcoin? great, let me buy whatever good and service I want to buy from you with Bitcoin and do it that way. And uh, it, it's just, it's starting to remove that unnecessary middleman of, of the government in every transaction, which, I, I mean, I guess to try and steal man, it, th there are times when it's nice to have the, that legal repercussion where, you know, you, you know, no, each side has a means to take the other to court if they get screwed. Um, but I think as we get more and more into this digital world where a lot of goods and services now are just online, uh, I think it's very important we have we have something that there's no refunds. It's it's uncensorable. It's just uh, if you fat finger transaction, too bad. Be better next time. Yeah, no, hundred percent agree. Yeah. There was a, there was another point that uh, I'm I'm having a brain fart on that you made earlier that I, I wanted to talk about. Um, it, it might might come to me later. Okay. Um, but looking forward, how do you think Bitcoin does scale to, to meet the 8 billion people? Uh, we, we have the Lightning Network now. We, we have all these exchanges and all these businesses, which seem to be more and more Bitcoin only as FTX and the, these crypto blow-ups from Mt. Gox to Quadricus CX to now FTX just get bigger and bigger. It seems like you have more and more Bitcoin companies. Um, I'm curious how you see Bitcoin scaling up to, to meet the needs of ho hopefully 8 billion people at some point in the future. Yeah, um, it's uh man, I don't know. There's like no good answer for it. I mean, I really get hung up a lot on just like the regulation as far as how the U.S. government views Bitcoin, um, taxing it as property. I feel like, and I'm open to, I mean, I would love to hear different arguments about it. I just, it really, it's difficult for me to see like, as far as like using Bitcoin as transactions, um, using Bitcoin for transactions with this current regulation in place, um, because technically, yeah, you have to like report all these taxable, uh, all these transactions as taxable events. And I find that just like, that's a huge hurdle um, as far as like the transaction um, adoption goes. And I know it's not the, like, that's not a huge, that's not, that's not necessarily bad. I mean, we're hodlers too. And we believe, you know, store of value is going to come first in like, you know, Bitcoin adoption around the world. Um, so I'm definitely like, I definitely understand that argument as well. But, and then to bring it back short to the book, the, the large blockers, I do get what they were saying. Like, Transact using Bitcoin for transactions is a big part of um, of the adoption. Uh, and it seems like third world countries or developing countries around the world 
yeah, a lot of those people are going to use, and like El Salvador is a good case, using Bitcoin as for transactions instead of saying, hey, let me save $1 a month, you know, or whatever local currency. I mean, I just, it's just not, that doesn't seem like, that's, that's not going to really pay off for them. You know, it will be percentage-wise, it'll be huge, but right, like how much wealth can they generate by having such little savings as it is? Um, so that's kind of a long-winded way of saying I don't know, but um, I do look forward to seeing how transaction adoption will play out, and it's definitely awesome to see in El Salvador. Um, I'm sure there's going to be more countries in the next few years here that adopt Bitcoin, because um, those countries, it's cool seeing how how the um, you know the medium of exchange adoption is going to go and how vendors are going to use it, how people buy goods and services. So I'm looking forward to that sort of taking off because we already know like Bitcoin is a store of value. It's great. Like we're we're already like you know you ask any Bitcoiner like. We don't care if Bitcoin stays this price for the next 10 years. Like, I really don't care. So it's already won as a store of value in our opinions, you know. But I would like to see it grow transactionally. Yeah, I love that answer. And it reminded me of what I, what I was meaning to ask you. It's Bitcoiners are so good about trying to steel man their own arguments and see the faults in their uh, opinions. And kind of like we talked about earlier, I think the big blockers, the, the biggest problem they had is they kind they stopped constantly assessing why they were pushing for something and why they were fighting for it. And I, I think just that the, you know, obviously we're just two Bitcoiners out of the millions out there, but just like that microcosm of like, I don't know, it's not perfect yet. It's so much better than the legacy system. And, you know, it has the means to help people in so many different ways. But we, you know, we, we constantly have to iterate. And uh, do you remember, uh, what's the guy's name? Baruch, when he broke the lightning network and he tweeted it and, uh, and everyone was so pissed off that he broke the Lightning Network. But now the Lightning Network is more resilient because he went ahead and broke it online. And I understand there were people who had products out and they probably lost some sats because of him breaking the Lightning Network. But now the Lightning Network is more resilient because he fixed a bug in it that otherwise would have uh, probably came and hurt people on later, you know, hurt people later on. So I, I think as a Bitcoiner, one thing that's just so important is constantly reassessing your beliefs and going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and not getting stagnant in your thoughts and just throwing your hands up and saying, oh, I assume Bitcoin's going to win. Now going more and more down the rabbit hole, I think the majority of people come to that conclusion, Bitcoin's inevitable, but it, it, it obviously, nothing's inevitable. We don't know right. what's going to happen next. And having the humility to say, I don't know, I think this might work, actually trying to go out and iterate. I love what you guys are doing at River to bring the Lightning Network to more people, to help more people on board, but then also being upfront with uh, some of the challenges, you know, not being afraid to say, yeah, well, there's some custodial problems in the Lightning Network and obviously liquidity issues and just trying to lay out all these things for people so people can make the best decision for themselves and decide what interactions in a marketplace they believe will benefit them. Because, you know, the Austrian school of thought is amazing but it, it does not say in it that both people will benefit from the trade. It's that both people think they will benefit from the trade. And that's all that required. It doesn't necessarily mean both people are going to end up benefiting from that uh, trade. Yeah, no, great point. Yeah, um, that was, um, yeah, I think, that, was that Rothbard maybe? Um, one of his books, um, I th I kind of so. learning about, yeah, learning about that point uh, was very enlightening as well. Understanding that um, each trade is not even. Each, each participant in a transaction thinks that they're gaining more than they're losing. That's why the transaction happens. And I, that was a, I remember that was a big point he argued. And that was, I mean, he's obviously, you know, has tons of points to um, enlighten somebody. But um, that was a cool point. Because I think anyone intuitively would just think, oh, if I trade something for you, you know, you buy this coffee for $5, 
we both equal the the good and the amount of money the same. Um, yeah, not to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah, I agree. That's a good rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. And, and also, <laughs> I, I think it uh, it gets lost on people. I think on a macro level, it's it's hard to see the, the negative consequences when you have that third that middleman, for lack of a better word, in the transaction. Um, not only kind of there omnipresent, but then they start messing with the the unit of account. And it's like it's like imagine trying to build a house with a ruler or a tape measure that you know constantly was changing the measurements on it. How would you ever build a, a reliable house that wasn't going to crumble in the future? You, you just could. You know, I love Preston Pish's monopoly analogy. It's like, how long can you play a game until it becomes so apparent that the uh, the banker and the example of monopoly is cheating that you just say screw this and you, and you flip the board over. And before you you say screw it and flip the board over, a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to cheat in this game too. And you know, until it becomes such mayhem that all the players then flip the board over and say, all right, screw it, I, I'm done with this game. Have you have you flipped the board over yet? <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I feel like I have. I mean, <laughs> I have not yet. You know, like there, there's so many different products and services in the fiat world that I still use to stack stats, like Gemini's uh, credit card. I know I don't have the fold card, um, but I know they have one. Lolly, uh, S Miles is an app that I use to just, and I guess, I guess to some degree that they're. Well, I, I don't know if they're. I mean, they're Bitcoin companies. They have a lot of VC backing. Um, Gemini's kind of a shitcoin exchange, but I mean, I'm stacking stats with a credit card. So it's like I still have my foot dipped in the fiat world and I'm trying to use Bitcoin more and more. And I do want to use it as a medium of exchange. I, I know there's a lot of critics out there who say, uh, you know, Bitcoin has to be more than, if it's just a store of value, then it'll never succeed. But I, I, I'm in the camp with you that first, it, you know, it must become a store of value. And then once it's treated as a store of value, as a savings, then it can become a medium of exchange. And I'm already zapping people on Nostra. Now, mostly I'm using Albi or Wallet of Satoshi, so it's custodial. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to actually stop LARPing and get my umbral <laughs> up so I can use my own lightning node. Um, but I, I think it's a bit ridiculous for people to say, you have to spend your Bitcoin or it won't become a medium. It's like, Bitcoin can be a store value for some and a medium of exchange for others. And it really all just depends on the person's situation. And uh, it's easy to complain about it. But if like, that's really how you feel, go and build something to fix it. Because anyone can use this protocol, this computer network, to uh, do what they please. And uh, I think there's sometimes, at least on, I think Nasser's getting, you don't really have this problem with Nasser, but I think on Twitter, there's a lot of people LARPing and just tweeting out stupid takes for engagement. You know, a lot of people have learned if you piss off the cyber hornets, yeah. the better or worse, you can get a lot, a lot of engagement that way. No, definitely. Uh, no, I wanted to comment on your point about, um, yeah, using Bitcoin as a, as a medium of exchange. I feel like personally over, since going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I have changed my tune a little bit. I mean, I think when I was first going down it, I was like, stack sats, I will not ever, ever, ever sell one sat, like, never ever ever you know what i mean putting it to cold mm -hmm. cold storage never touching it forever and i have changed my tune a little bit because i just find it fun too as well to use bitcoin like if i buy bitcoin if i use it buy a gift card using bitcoin um non-kyc and then using that using that gift card to go into like a walgreens or a target and actually buying something i just find it fun you know what i mean i have no there's no like philosophy behind it i'm not, i'm literally giving away sats i understand that to buy that card for fiat but i've changed my tune um like personally, like I don't care anymore. I'm like, if I'm gonna spend twenty dollars, like it's cool, it's awesome. I can tell somebody about it, especially when I'm with somebody who I can, if they don't have Bitcoin, explain to them like, hey, I bought this 
it's not the perfect situation right now, obviously. I mean, ideally, we'd be paying Target like, using Lightning or whatever. But there are workarounds, and I just find it fun. Yeah, exactly. There's those workarounds, and it's just how in a world where kids are just growing up with cell phones, where they're just used to being able to Venmo or PayPal each other or whatever apps they have in the rest of the world if you're not in the States, how are these kids not just – I mean, look at Apple Pay. Like, all it's going to take is Apple to integrate Apple Pay, and then it's just going to be click, tap your phone, you're good to go. And uh, I, I love that. You know, it, it is fun to use your stats. I love yeah. pulling up my Moon Wallet out of Bitcoin Meetup, yeah. and if there's a no, a no coiner being like, all right, you know what? Download a Moon Wallet. I'm going to send you a dollar, and uh, you send them a dollar. And, and, like, just that look on their face. They're like, what? I didn't have to sign up for a bank. There were no KYC yeah. laws. How, how, how does this work? And then hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of them forgot about it, and th those stats are just a donation to the network. But for the ones yeah. who go down the rabbit hole, it's, uh, I think, I think it's so so rewarding and it's such a fun way to use Bitcoin just to see that reaction, man. It's priceless. No, definitely. Totally agree. Have you changed your tune at all too? Like when you first were going on the rabbit hole, were you like never sell, never touching it, never giving away any sats? I, you know, I kind of shit coin for a little bit. I didn't really understand um, the difference between everything. Like, you know, any, it's like, oh, I should probably diversify because that's what the experts say. I had no <laughs> idea. And I remember watching the BCH split and being like, why the hell is there another Bitcoin? Honestly, it just worried me. I was like, well, this doesn't seem good. Now there's two Bitcoin and there's only one Bitcoin before. Like, that's not good. And uh, what really started making me go down the rabbit hole is when I got a stimulus check in 2020. And, uh, you know, part of me was like, hell yeah, 1200 bucks. Let's go. This is sweet. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, dude, inflation is going to rip. This is going to suck. This is like... It's like eating junk food. Like it's great when you're eating the junk food, but then like you know, 30 minutes later and you got a stomach ache and you're like, Ugh. except in this case it was like you know, a year later. <laughs> you're like, why the hell Definitely. are my steaks twice the price? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, to your, to your point, the more I've gone down, like of course I'm gonna spend my sats and I just try and stack sats as many ways. And I love what Strike's done, so where you can like deposit USD and then use Lightning to send the recipient Bitcoin and you have USD on your end, so there's no tax. Um, there's no tax taxable events, uh, but I, I do I do look at Bitcoin as savings, and that's one of the things I try and tell people I'm orange pilling. It's like I don't look at this as an investment anymore. I look at it as savings, and I love Sailor's take on I, I forget what reporter that she was asking him like, well, Michael, if your Bitcoin goes up, aren't you going to sell it? And he looks at her and he's like, let me ask you something. If the Argentinian peso has a good day against the dollar, you think I'm going to sell my dollar to buy some pesos? <laughs> of course not. So why the hell would I sell my Bitcoin to buy you know this worthless fiat? And uh, I, I think showing people like that that mindset it goes a long way to to helping them on their journey. Definitely. Well, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Uh, two more questions for you: sure. Are there any other books out there that you? really helped you in your Bitcoin journey outside of the block size war, which I, I highly recommend anyone who's listened to this read it. It was really an insightful book on some of the challenges Bitcoin faced in its earlier days. And I think it instills a lot of confidence in both of us, uh, what Bitcoin has become since the 2015 to 2017 block size wars. Yeah. I mean, I, it's almost a cliche at this point, but Bitcoin standard, the Bitcoin standard by Safedine. I mean, you know, top five book probably of my life that I've read, to be honest. Um, in terms of just the outlook and changing somebody, changing my perspective on the world, I mean, or how I view the world. But yeah, like I said, it's almost, it's gotten, um, everyone takes it for granted at this point, but anyone who's new to Bitcoin, I mean, that should be 
is probably book number one. I don't, to be honest, I don't know if it's maybe a little, if it would go over somebody's head that didn't know anything about Bitcoin. Um, Cause I read it at like a good time where I was kind of like a year down the rabbit hole, you know what I mean? Sort of understood Bitcoin already. Reading the Bitcoin Center, I'm actually not sure how, how, how well it would be received by someone who doesn't know anything about Bitcoin, but that's definitely um, the place to start. Well, and too, uh, you know, to the point you made earlier about how Bitcoiners are actually willing to question their beliefs and constantly try and harden uh, from all angles for safety to go on and then write the fiat standard and do exactly that with fiat currency and actually articulate why fiat currency came to be and why it's useful and why it actually served a very legitimate purpose to help gold overcome some of the shortcomings. Uh, I think that just ties in so perfectly. And the last question I have for you, Mike, is that where, where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter um, at Hodlologist, um, H-O-D-L-ologist. I'm not too active on there, but um, I do like to, you know, talk to people, slide on my DMs, always available to talk. If you have any further questions about River or want to talk about Bitcoin more generally, um, you can email me at mike at river.com. Always, um, I'm on my phone 24-7, so any way you reach me, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in touch. But, yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Connor. Yeah, my pleasure and respect. I'll have all that linked in the show note, and uh, I'll grab your in-pub after this and put that in there for anyone listening. Absolutely. I, I can't recommend checking out Nostra enough. You don't even have to part with your fiat currency anymore. Stack stats from shitposting, stack stats from walking, all these apps, man. It, it, we're going to look back, and I, I hope we don't see an executive 6102 or whatever, and, you know, the executive order where they got rid of gold. And I hope they don't do that with Bitcoin, but uh, I, I think people are going to look back and be like, I could have stacked stats all these ways, and I didn't. I didn't even have to part with my fiat currency. So don't regret it. Stack now. Definitely.